Well, let's pray. Father, I would just ask that um, you would allow your Holy Spirit freedom through my heart and in the hearts of each person here, whether they are on some of the first steps of investigation and understanding what it means to be a follower of you and committing their heart and life to you, or whether it means that they are just many, many steps down the road and have walked with you for years. What a great thing, a community. Bring us together, all the generations, all the different backgrounds, and speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this weekend has been kind of a wedding weekend for me. In fact, yesterday I was at two different weddings. I um, was one at two and then left from that one in St. Paul's, one at five here in the Long Lake area, and then went back for the dinner reception and came back here again. It was just a a day of weddings. Um, In fact, I will have performed or will perform another six or so weddings this year. We're kind of in what I call wedding season. Um, Some of you are aware of that. But one of the things that's that I will often do when I have a, a couple before me and I get that privilege of saying some of those last things to those people as they're getting married, I have them look at each other. And when I have them look at each other, I remind them, I will often give this message. You are about to give to one another one of the most valuable gifts you can give to someone. And I let them know I'm not talking about the diamond ring. That's just a symbol externally, visibly, of what's actually being exchanged in commitments of words and vows to one another, where they are actually in that moment giving this incredible gift of one person to another, wholly, unreservedly, willfully, for life. And I'll often ask them, do you you really have any idea of the magnitude of this gift that you are giving and signing up for? Now, now some of you who are married know exactly what that means, right? How it can stretch you and and cause you to grow. And and then some of you know what that's like and how it has stretched you and actually broken that commitment and the pain. But it's a huge deal. To stand to look in the another person's eyes and to say, I'm giving myself wholly, fully, 100% to you. My hope is when they're standing there, they have gotten to know and understand one another. That hopefully they have seen evidence that the person that they're committing to is credible and trustworthy. That the person that they are looking into their eyes, that that person that they're seeing is someone who's really committed in their heart to their, their own well-being as well as vice versa. Hopefully, the more you trust another, you can fully entrust yourself to each other for life. That's a big deal. It's a big deal to give yourself fully, wholly to someone else. Now, I want you to read these words in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Because that's what's going on here. Jesus went on from there, which was Capernaum. And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
I remember early in my ministry when I looked at this and actually didn't just kind of read through it devotionally or kind of read through it from a story standpoint. I actually looked at it and began to think about it. And I I remember thinking to myself as I was looking at this critically, come on, that's just too hard to believe. And Luke stretches the boundaries of, of belief further by adding this statement. He says Matthew got up and left everything. Not just got up and followed him, but he left everything. I'm thinking, like, who does that? Seriously. Who meets someone, then gets up and leaves everything to follow that person? How many of you, think of this for a second, how many of you would give $10,000 to someone you didn't know, even if they promised to return within a year to you $100,000? I mean, maybe you've heard about them, but you really don't know them. You know, sure, take this $10,000. Or how many of you would say, as you met someone in the morning and say later in the afternoon, great, let's get married tonight. Or how many of you would say, oh, follow you. Okay, just give me a second to clear my desk and let me write my letter of resignation and I'm, I'm, I'm right on your heels. Let me put it another way. Maybe maybe there are a few romantically inebriated individuals in this world, right, who might do that. But look at this passage. How many accountant-type people do you know who would hand over $10,000, let alone $10? Or say yes to the dress, you know, I'll give my life on the spur of a moment. Look at, look at this verse. As Matthew, as, as he writes, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at, and he got under his tax collector's booth. Matthew was a tax collector, an accountant. He was a deliberate, thoughtful, calculating guy, writing a gospel, seeking to get people to make a deliberate, calculated, thoughtful decision to sign up and say, I will give my life to follow this person named Jesus. And so how does a person make such a dramatic decision to follow? You ever thought of that? You read this verse? What does it look like to, to, to actually have someone come up to you and say, follow, and, and you follow? What is that all about? What, is, what does it involve? Well, the first thing I want us to notice as we look at this verse is that following Jesus is really a series of steps. This looks so immediate when you read it. In fact, Luke makes it not just immediate but comprehensive when he says that he got up immediately in a sense and gave everything to follow him. But if you really understand the way the gospel is written, this isn't just some kind of thing done on a whim, some spur of a moment kind of a decision. This is, again, a tax collector. It may, as you read it, look to be hard to understand, but you have to begin to ask yourself these kind of questions. How does a person go from being merely a spectator on the outside, on the sidelines, to a person who is so actively engaged that they're not only a player, but they're fully involved? How does a person... Go from a point of about hearing about Jesus and then maybe attending on a few Sunday mornings. And then at a certain point, their life begins to revolve around their thought life begins to revolve around what does it mean to follow this person? What does it mean for someone who gives maybe just a few dollars on on a Sunday morning, but eventually comes to a place and says, you know what? Here is my wealth in a sense. What do you want of it? How does a person come to that place where they say possibly in a persecuted country, because it doesn't happen here, but where they say, if you make a stand and you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you will be a follower in your death. You will actually die. How do you go from, from 
from that to the big one. You ever thought of whether you could just in that situation, someone said you deny um, Jesus, you live. And if you don't, you die. How do people get to that? I think it often happens to this kind of commitment where a person begins to understand and grows in confidence in the, in the goodness and the love and, and through encounters with this God who begins to change their heart and over that change of heart they begin to see this God who is good and kind and loving and begins to, um, through that process of trust, you entrust more to the point where you actually are beginning to die daily to your own self so you can take in more of who this God is so at some point you can come to that point of death. For someone you love. It's a journey. When you look at this, following Jesus is a series of steps. And I think what's interesting here is Matthew doesn't give us the backstory, but just like in any story, there's a story behind the story. You know, it's a kind of uh, some of you who are old enough to know the Paul Harvey and now you know the rest of the story kind of experience. Well, let me just share with you what I think the story of Matthew might have been like. Here's what the scripture shares with us, that there was a series of steps when people were following Jesus to the point where they gave it all. Here's what I'm wondering may have happened. Here is Matthew. He's at his tax booth. He's coming to the end of his day. He's tallying, you know, tallying up his numbers, getting the books ready. He's putting his books away. And one of his tax friends comes up to him and says, you know what, Matthew, let's let's instead of going to the local pub or whatever is that they're going to go to. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, let I want you to hear about this guy named Jesus. There's this guy that I, I listened to the other day, and a couple of Matthew's friends are standing there. And one guy goes, not only you got to hear about this Jesus, I'd like you to see what this Jesus does. So Matthew kind of reluctantly puts his books away, goes, you know, I'll go with these guys. They're my buddies. And he goes with his buddies, and he goes to hear this Jesus. And, and somehow he gets pushed to the front with his guys and his friends. And they're there, front seats, so to speak, listening to the message of Jesus. And as he's speaking, he is hearing this rabbi speak about things he'd never heard about before. He's hearing this rabbi speak about a God who loves people like Matthew, a guy who is completely in the eyes of the religious of his day, a sinner. In fact, if you, you understand what it means about this tax collector's booth, he said that he came from there, which is the town of Capernaum. Tax collectors' booths were often on the outskirts of town. Because Capernaum was this, was this city where this main trade route would go through. And this trade route would come from the north down to the south. And just like when you go into an airport when you're coming from another country, and you know you stand in line and, and you have to show everything that you have in, in customs and you have to pay off something for that if you get too much, that's exactly what was happening. They would go through Capernaum and they would be on the outskirts of the town and they had purchased things there. And then they would go ahead and they would set up this tax booth where you would have to pay. Now, what made these guys despicable, rotten people were a couple of things in the eyes of normal Jews, religious people that day. Here was a guy who's in this tax collector's booth. He's working for someone who is occupying their land, another power. In this case, he's working for the guy they don't like, King Herod, because this is the territory that he's at. So he is a local guy who is employed by another person. And not only that, as people are going through the line, he is every day in contact with these sinner Gentiles from a whole other place who have no idea of what it means to follow God. 
So not only are they working for an occupying power, they're daily unclean. They're daily getting touched by a whole bunch of other people that you really shouldn't be hanging around with. And on top of that, most of these guys were skimming from the top. They were completely dishonest. They were not the kind of people that, um, that you would want to in any way hang around with. So here is Matthew. He's going to hear this rabbi. He begins to hear this rabbi talking about the fact that there is a God who loves these people who are just like Matthew, who are, quote, the sinners of his day. And at one point, I wonder if as Matthew's listening, he, he connects with the eyes of Jesus just for a moment. You know when you're feeling full of shame and guilt and you, and you know that your relationship isn't right with God. You, you maybe in your own heart feel this sense of brokenness. And he looks at Jesus. He can't even keep eye contact. He's got to look down. And yet he knows in some ways Jesus just saw in his heart. He leaves there and he goes and maybe it's been a few days. He's at his tax collector booth. He sees this large crowd of people coming and he's going, OK, I'm going to make some money off of this group coming through. This large crowd comes along and all of a sudden he finds out in this large group is a guy named Jesus, the rabbi who he had come to see. And these people kind of come through and Jesus comes along, but not like the other rabbis of the day. Most of the other rabbis of the day, they wouldn't even probably go near the tax booth. They'd have someone else take care of all those dealings. They would often not even look at them. They would go by and they would spit in the ground because that kind of person was despicable. And they would make sure that that person knew just how rotten they were by not even having any eye contact, any, any sense of presence with them. But here's Jesus. Jesus comes along. He walks through. He sees Matthew. He comes along. He goes, you know, Matthew, um, weren't you at one of my meetings? It's really good to see you. He treats him with kindness and respect and love in a way that he's never... No religious guy was that way. But here is Jesus housing the very presence and loving sense of grace and kindness of God coming along. And Jesus looking at him. And Matthew is experiencing something he hasn't ever experienced before from someone who seemed to be out of touch, in a sense, too religious too good. Matthew's kind of shaken because Jesus goes through, he pays, he's kind. He says, you know, have a great day, walks by. Probably the same thing happens on the way back later in that day because Jesus was an itinerant minister. He wasn't just headquartered in Capernaum. He would go out to different little towns and villages and he would preach and maybe come back a few days later. Matthew see him comes back. Matthew maybe knows that Jesus is teaching again. And Jesus would teach a lot, as it says, by Lake Galilee. And so maybe his tax booth on the outskirts of town was not too far from where Jesus was. So he closes down his tax booth one day. Now he goes to see and hear Jesus probably for the, maybe the third time. And he's in this position and he's hearing about Jesus. And he's, Jesus is really funny, too. And he, he tells stories. He makes light of the things that some people were taking so seriously with regard to these scruples of the law and things. And, and then he would at a certain point turned and he would begin to talk about this incredible love of God. And Matthew in his heart would feel that distance. And as he would feel that distance, he would be drawn in because the presence of God through Jesus and his words and, and through the presence of God through his Holy Spirit began to speak in his heart. And that presence of God began to touch his heart, just like it has happened to some of you. 
when you've been in a position where you've actually read God's word or maybe heard a song or maybe there's a person who's been speaking. And it's not the speaker. It's not the song. It's not the thing you're reading. It's the spirit of God just reaching into your heart, kind of beginning to tug at your heart, beginning to pull you. And you're beginning to think, could, could this God love me this much? Could this God who sees me and, and, and knows about me and, and understands how broken my life is? And, and could this God possibly want me? And, and so you get this, this, this sense of Matthew being drawn into this and his heart is touched and moved and he's probably thinking, you know, I'll never get to be one of those followers of Jesus. I just am too messed up and too broken. I've, made, I've had too many failures. I have hurt too many people. I've skimmed too much money. I have wrecked my marriage. I have had this and that. I would, you know, it'd be cool to be a follower, but maybe I could throw some money at the cause. And if Jesus ever needed, I could maybe just help him that way. And he leaves the meeting. His heart has been so profoundly touched. And so he's back at the tax collector's booth and he sees a crowd coming again. He's already heard ahead of time that this crowd is following after Jesus. And Jesus comes through the tax booth. And as he's coming through the tax booth, he sees Matthew and he goes, Matthew, how you doing? Saw you again at my meeting the other day. And he loves him, and he treats him with kindness, and he looks him in the eyes, and this time Matthew begins to receive it. And Matthew is so moved in his heart, and he wants to say, as, as Jesus begins to give his toll, his custom, he, 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 Matthew says to him, you know, you don't need to pay, Lord. And Matthew's about to tell him, I would like to give you something for your ministry. And before he can do that, Jesus looks at him and he says, Matthew, would you follow me? And Matthew goes, let me clean my desk. Let me, let me get my letter of resignation signed and written, and I'll be right with you. Because it was a series of steps where he was being loved and touched and, and where Jesus was, his presence was so full and so rich around his sense of unworthiness that it was this incredible conversion of his own heart. But it didn't happen on the spur of the moment. And I bet that's the same for every person here. We're doing a thing called Summer to Serve. And Jay Lakin and Beth, they talk about how they sold their suburban million-dollar home in Atlanta. And, and they're here teaching us about dignity to serve. They've been going through the country the last two years. They've been on Good Morning America. And the big thing is they sold their home. But, you know, it didn't happen like that. They actually went to Africa. When they were in Africa, they were so moved by what God was doing, they came home and they said, we can't live like this. They began to pray about it. Then they began to realize they needed to talk to their kids about it. And they had this crazy idea of doing this thing. But it was all a series of steps of God working in their heart and drawing them further and moving them further along to a point where they say, here, God, take it. The Johnsons going to Peru. It was a series of steps where they went on some mission trips over a number of years, and eventually they went for six months and stayed there, and then there were six months, and then they came back and began to pray about it, and God began to work in their hearts, and God said, I want you here. After the service, I had a lady come up to me who, through a series of relationships, with a relationship with a person who has just loved her, she, she works in the area here. And this person in our body has just shared Jesus with her and loved her. Basically just loved her. And, and she came a few weeks ago. I sent her a, a, a message. She looked at me today and she said, yesterday I asked Jesus into my heart. I want to follow him. It is, it is that simple but that profound. Verse 9 isn't hard to believe when you begin to understand the steps of confidence and the series of steps that lead you to a point where you begin to say, I am ready to give it all. 
to you. And that's why when we look at our mission statement in our church, one of the reasons our mission statement says what it is, is because it so comes from the heart of the gospel. It comes from the heart of us as elders and as a church and from my own heart. Our mission is to help all people take their next step in knowing and following Jesus. Which means to do that, it doesn't mean you try and get people way up here when they're really just here. It may mean that a person has an understanding of Jesus that's been so inaccurate over the years that all you can do is to meet them right where they're at and help them take some gentle steps to the point where they get to see Jesus for who he really is. Or a person does come and begins to follow Jesus, but yet there's a whole lot of other things. There's pain in their life. There's woundedness that they've had as they've grown up. And, And you begin to love them and you begin to get them into the right kind of settings where they begin to hear the healing power of God in their life and you help them step by step because our job is to live in the present and not in the past nor in the future they do influence us and they should give us guidance and they should direct us to some degree but only influence we are to live now in the present this moment folks this is so hard for me I'm just in some ways not even wired that way. In fact, it's hard for me even in my own marriage relationship to live in that kind of way that I'm talking about. In fact, I was going through this and I thought, you know, some of the best marital counseling advice that I ever got was about four to five years ago. And I share this in one person said, well, it takes a lot of courage to share this. And, you know, I, I was sharing the fact this first service that from time to time, Grace and I will go in and get a marital counseling checkup. And it's usually when we're stuck in our relationship and usually I'm the one who has no idea we're stuck. You guys should be laughing and women, you know exactly what I mean, right? But I am wired this way. My strengths are strategic, competitive, activator, achiever, futuristic, which means I want to figure out how fast I can make the future I envision happen before anyone else. So I'm always out here. That's not one of the greatest relational strengths you can have. My wife, on the other hand, grew up in a family system where it's just this humble system where you served others. In fact, you never you don't ask for help for yourself. You can ask for help for other people. In fact, that gives you strength if it's for someone else. But it's for yourself. It's it feels selfish. And so one time we're in and this this therapist is talking to us and here I'm in the future and here is Grace afraid to ask for personal needs. In the present, the now, we can kind of miss each other in the moment. And he gave us such simple advice. He just said this, Kevin, just you need to look at Grace in the eyes and say, what do you need from me today? This moment. Right now. You know what you need to get into the practice of saying, what is your next step and how can I help you take it today? How can I come alongside you and lovingly meet your need today. Now, I say this with my wife here, and I can tell you, guys, they don't, that's a great technique, but none of your wives want techniques. If they start arguing about your time in your home that they feel like you should be here, and you take out your calendar and try and prove to them how much you have been home versus not, anybody ever done that before? Oh, come on. Yeah, you get real. What they want is not a technique or a little bit of time. They want your heart. They want this into your character. 
So I want to ask you this simple question when you think about following Jesus being a series of steps. What does the person God has placed before you need today, right now, in the moments you're in? What does the person, when you go, some of you, to work tomorrow, and the person in the cubicle next to you in the moment then need? Right then. Some of you young parents who are having this time where you watch your kids playing soccer on the sidelines, as you stand in the sidelines, what does that person or couple who is next to you at that moment need? Is the presence of God, His love and His grace, His desire to know and to understand and to bring others into the life that He wants you to live, is it there at all in you as you're next to someone? What does the person God has placed before you at the moment need? That's how Jesus lived. He lived in the presence so that when Jesus came to a tax collector's booth, when he came to a Matthew, he didn't just walk by him. He actually noticed him. He actually looked him in the eye. He actually sought to understand. He actually sought to bring this presence of the God who is in him into the moment so that when he looked at him, he listened to him and he loved him. And this man knew it. So that when he looked him in the eyes at a certain point and he said, Matthew, follow me, it was a no-brainer. He had been so moved by God. I just want us to think about this for a moment before I just move on. I, I want to be that way. I don't do that well. We need to be that way. Just imagine the impact of God through people who live that way. It's not about shame or guilt. This is just about being aware of what God wants to do. That's what love always is. And when you look at it this way, it doesn't seem so ridiculously inconceivable when you understand that following Jesus is merely a series of steps where the presence of God comes and builds confidence and trust in relationship. And then following Jesus leads to transformation. And I'm going to kind of come move along on this one rather quickly, but there's so much package in this. Look at verse 9 again. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. The idea that he says name Matthew is incredibly important here. Matthew is giving at this point an autobiographical account of his call to follow Jesus. He has set up, beginning in Matthew chapter 8, three stories of the miraculous power of healing of God and then the call of God in the life of people. Three more stories and another call of God. And then we'll look at three more stories and another call of God upon his disciples. But here we are in the middle of it, smack dab in the middle of all these things that Jesus is doing. And Matthew says, let me tell you my own story. And what I find is interesting is that Matthew writes that Jesus saw a man named Matthew. And this is really just a very subtle but important thing to note because it speaks of this truth that following Jesus always leads to transformation. If you read Mark and Luke, both Mark and Luke, as they give the exact same story, they say instead of the man named Matthew, they say a man named Levi. Now, what I find incredible about this is I read commentaries. Some of the people who are studying God's word, they build all kinds of theories around this. And they try and make these things so difficult and they try and prove their theories. And I just sat there as I read them and I just finally put some of them down. And I thought the simple reality is something so profound that happened to Matthew. And it's all wrapped up in a name. 
Matthew's a different person. Matthew was a guy named Levi. At a certain point in his life, through a series of steps, he came, encountered this God through Jesus Christ, experienced his love, and as a result of this love, his life was changed. His identity was actually changed. He was one who was broken away from God, was living his own life selfishly, and at a certain point began to realize this break, felt his guilt and his shame, and when he saw it in the presence of God and began to experience his love, his whole heart changed. And instead of a person who wanted to skim people of their money, he wanted to actually give his money. He actually wanted to take not his life so he could get what he could get, for himself, he began to say, how can I take my life and do something with it? And at that point, Jesus looked at him and said, you were once Levi. Your name now means Matthew. The Hebrew name means a gift of God. Jesus looks at Matthew and goes, you know what, Matthew, because of what's going on in your life and through these series of steps, and as you begin to follow me and begin to know me, your life will be this incredible gift of God. You have no idea what your life will be as you, as you walk with me and you begin to know this, this transforming power that, that happens when you follow Jesus. And here's what's so cool about it. Matthew is this guy. is a guy named Gundry. He writes this in a book called Use of the Old Testament. Matthew's work as a tax collector assured his fluency in these languages, Aramaic and Greek. As well as being a tax collector, he was... A person who had accuracy in keeping records, and it fitted him for taking notes and later writing the gospel. Do you know that in Matthew, it's the only gospel that has a Sermon on the Mount? Do you know it's the one that has a number of parables that none of the other gospels have? It has a number of stories that none of the other gospels have? Because Jesus looked at Matthew, and he said, Matthew, you're a gift of God. You have no idea. You see yourself as not being able to give anything for God. You can make a lot of money. You can do a lot of things and maybe throw some money at things. But you're much more than that. You are a person who God has prepared, and he's prepared you in such a way to make a difference in the lives of other people. In fact, Matthew, you are such a gift to God that you are a person who knows how to take notes. And, and because you know how to take notes, you'll be listening to me, and you'll take these things, and at some point, the Spirit of God will come upon you and you'll be able to kind of address these things, put them in a book, and it will touch all kinds of people's lives. And I, I would point to every one of you. You are no different. God has prepared you. He has done things in your life. He's been preparing you through a series of steps because He is bringing you to a point of transformation and that transformation will make a difference in the lives of other people. Here's the key. We think of transformation in a very superficial way. We think transformation means, well, I go to church more, I'm, I'm more regular, I, I get involved in a, a Bible study, I, I read God's Word. Those are all really good because those things help transformation. But transformation isn't activities. The church has had that wrong. I'm just saying this so plainly. It is not about more activities. Activities can help produce change. But it is not about that. It is about your character becoming like Jesus. It means that as you walk and follow Jesus, you most, if, you're, if this isn't happening, something is wrong. You, you have to become a person who becomes more like Jesus. Not in activities, but in who you are. And so, I've shared this before, but I, I, I think this is one of the uh, best in my mind, uh, examples. I remember when my friend John wrote this book. It was prior to his writing this book. I was visiting him. It had been a few years out of seminary. He had a church. I had a church. And we're sitting at this, um, this uh, place outside a coffee shop in this mall. And uh, we're in California. We're talking. And he says, Kevin, I'm writing this book. And, one of, and he tells me this story about a guy named Hank, which he put in here. And he says, um, I'm just struggling right now with this whole idea of 
going to church and following Jesus in if there isn't a change. He writes, Hank, as we will call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily. And when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it, coming at someone's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he worked to make sure everyone stayed humble. He was a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. And although he went to church and followed Jesus through most his entire life, he was never unshackled. He goes on to share a funny story. And then he says, sometimes Hank's joylessness really ended in comedy. But more often, it produced sadness. His children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about he, his son, how he met his wife at a dance. But his son could never tell his father because Hank would disapprove of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor and a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from his own. Whatever capacity he once might have had for joy or wonder or gratitude had atrophied. He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got a little smaller. Every year he followed Jesus and was in the church. Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young man, and he grew up to be a cranky old man. But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected that his soul would remain the same, withered, and year after year it would sour, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by the condition. It wasn't an anomaly that caused Head-scratching bewilderment. Like, like, what's up here with Hank? No church consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held to probe the strange case of this person who followed the church's general guidelines and followed Jesus for spiritual life and yet was never transformed. And the church staff did have some expectations. The staff expected that Hank would affirm certain religious beliefs. We expected that he would attend services, read the Bible, support the church financially, pray regularly, and avoid certain sins. But here's what we didn't expect. We didn't expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if Jesus were living in Hank's place. You've got to catch that. Following Jesus leads to transformation because Jesus actually enters us and lives within us. We didn't expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if Jesus were in Hank's place. We didn't assume that each year would find him a more compassionate, joyful, gracious, winsome personality. We didn't anticipate that he was on the way to becoming a source of delight and courtesy who overflowed with rivers of living water. So we were not shocked when it didn't happen. In fact, everyone, even those following Jesus in the church, would have been shocked if it did. I just say that because 
This whole thing of transformation, following Jesus, a series of steps, means that within us, we have to become a more loving and gracious and joyful and kind and dependable and humble. Those are the evidences of change. And the last thing that we look at here in following Jesus is he just calls for honest evaluation. And I'll just read these verses and make a simple point. Well, Jesus, in verse 10, it says, was having dinner at Matthew's mansion. It should be. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they didn't have enough guts. That's my little part. They came to the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with these no good tax collectors and these shame-filled sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what it means. This has been written throughout the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not a bunch of little sacrifices. Following Jesus, he says, is this. I have come to call the right. I have not come to call the righteous, but people who are sinners, people who honestly evaluate themselves. Following Jesus means keeping your eyes on Jesus. I have to share with you because it's so easy for us to do, especially with competitive strength. It means measuring yourself not against someone else ever. But it really means measuring yourself against Jesus. And when you look at Jesus and you say, this is Jesus, and you look at your own heart, that gives you the distance. And we all are so distant if we're willing to look that way. Every one of us, if we really honestly look at it, have to go, you know what? As much as I want to appear like my heart is really spiritually healthy, in comparison to Jesus, I'm sick. But here's the good news. Anyone who has received him has become well and healthy, but it's in him. Not in yourself. And the problem with comparing yourself to those you think are sinners will always lead you to feeling pride and feeling spiritually self-righteous. And you will not see your own need. You will not see your own evil heart. You will not do, as this says, make honest assessments. Because you will quickly judge and it happens so subtly. People who are spiritually, honestly evaluating themselves see the deep stain of selfishness in their diseased hearts and are convinced that it's not a couple of pills or a few office visits. They won't be enough. They need a generous benefactor who will provide and pay for a complete heart transplant. And they will live in that. So I'm going to ask you just to conclude with just a few questions, the checkup questions. Are you spiritually authentic? Or maybe ask it this way. Am I spiritually inauthentic? Inauthenticity involves trying to appear more spiritual than you are. Let me ask you another one. I ask you to really just kind of think about this. Evaluate your heart. Am I becoming judgmental? Exclusive? Am I becoming proud? Here's another one to ask yourself. Am I becoming more approachable or less? And just to ask this question, I'm going to ask you what comes to mind right away when I ask it. Am I measuring my spiritual life in superficial ways? 
What's the first thing that comes to mind? You say, I look at my spiritual life. If it's activity and not character, it's the wrong measure. Let's pray. Father, as we just conclude and sing this song and worship, we are going to just pause and look once again at you. We're going to put our eyes on you and recognize and see who you are so that we can get a better grasp of who we are. Father, thank you. Lead us as we follow you. Amen.